Hello everyone and welcome back to the Sfin podcast. My name is Valentina Gritti, I'm the podcast host and the global community and project manager of the Slow Food Youth Network. This is the third and last episode dedicated to the On My Plate Challenge, a six-week-long challenge in which we can all act collectively for a better food system. If you haven't signed up for the challenge yet, you can do it on onmyplate.slowfood.com. Today, you are going to listen to a whole episode dedicated to fair food. We will learn what fair food means under three different perspectives, with our special hosts from Rome, Paris and New York. So, let's now meet our guests. Diletta Bellotti is a young human rights advocate and founder of the Pomodori Rosso Sangue movement, Blood Ready Tomatoes. She's actively campaigning against organized crime, especially when it comes to labor force exploitation and migration. Today she will talk to us about the caporalato phenomenon, a particular type of labor exploitation in agriculture and not only. The second guest is Bastien Beaufort, assistant director of Guayapi, a fair trade company based in Paris and which commercializes products from the Amazon and from Sri Lanka. Among their products, they are also training the Warana from the Slow Food Presidium of the Sateremawe community in the Brazilian Amazon. Last but not least, we are going to have a discussion with Nevin Cohen, who is Associate Professor at the City University of New York at the School of Public Health and is Research Director at the CUNY Urban Food Policy Institute. Together with Christine Reynolds, he wrote the book Beyond the Kale, Urban Agriculture and Social Justice Activism in New York City. So we're going to deal with labor exploitation, fair trade, fair access to food and much more. But first of all, let's ask our guests our icebreaker question. What is an important plate for you? Okay, to be honest, that's a super hard question in this moment because I am extremely hungry. And uh, yeah, so I can't really focus. I would eat anything. But I think my favorite meal is, is surely something with pasta or maybe pizza. I know I'm super stereotypical to be an Italian, but that's that's the truth, you know. And um, and then vegetables. I love anything that I that it's fair and sustainable. Um, so I think my favorite dish would be um, pasta with cauliflower and spicy. Uh, so yeah, that's it. It's super simple pasta. My mom makes it brilliantly and I love it. And I, I make it decently myself as well. Every plate that is prepared with love, with attention, with slowness, and that is shared in family, in friends, and also with unknown people. And this is why, if I would say an important, not my favorite necessarily, I would say a simple soup. Because as a initiator and developer of the disco soup movement, I always felt that the soup was the most democratic, universal and horizontal plate in the world because you just basically mix any vegetable you find and it's good, you know. Add a little spices, of course. Hi, thanks for inviting me to be in this podcast. The um, pandemic has meant that uh, my husband and I have been cooking at home almost exclusively, mostly vegetarian meals, simple plates, uh, using some of the tomatoes we grew last summer, and that helps us anticipate spring and a new gardening season. But 
because we cook at home so much during the, the pandemic as a treat, it's really great to order in from a local Thai restaurant. And, and that's important because small restaurants need so much help during the pandemic. And uh, what's important is that we order by calling the restaurant directly. We don't use any intermediary app that siphons profits off the restaurant. And uh, we tip the delivery man very generously uh, because food delivery during the pandemic is a, a very, very risky um, occupation and uh, uh, delivery people need generous support from customers. Diletta, you have been personally campaigning a lot against a particular form of labor exploitation, which is called caporalato. Could you explain to us what it is exactly? Well, caporalato is an illegal mediation system. It can be translated as gang master system in English, and it is a subsystem of mafia. Caporali, as they are called, they are mediators between the employer and the employee. Caporalato is active mainly in agriculture, but also in construction, in Italy, as well as in other parts of Europe and the world, clearly. It is an exploitation system, and it is strong where informality is strong, as most mafia systems. It is born in an institutional, vacu- in an institutional vacuum, and it, and it is strong because of an institutional vacuum. This is essential to understand. So people exploited under this mafia system, they can be national or migrant of migrant origin, they can be of any age really, of any nationality as, as I said, but they have one thing in common, they are outcast, they are excluded from our systems and they have really no bargaining power in the system, in the reality they live in. They are paid around 2-3 euros per hour to collect our food, Sometimes they're not even paid. They're victims, I mean, they're survivors of violence, abuses, and unfortunately they're not survivors of murder, as it happens often. In the past five years, around 1,500 people died in Italy under the system. Sometimes, as I said, they die because they're killed, because they tried to rebel, maybe. But they also really often die of exhaustion, of fatigue, in other words. Caporalato system is an extremely ancient system. As I said, it has begun because the employment system was informal and it kept getting stronger and stronger with the global age. And now it has networks with international organized crime and links with human trafficking. And how can you respond to such a huge problem from a legal perspective? Which actions would you suggest? From a global European and national perspective, We need a certification that proves that the food we eat is ethical and not, not just organic. Organic is not enough. Of course, we want organic food, but we also want that people that work in the, in the food industry are not exploited or not killed. So the first thing is a certification. Of course, it's extremely hard to certificate food. Why? Because our food systems rely on exploitations. And if they're not, if food is certified, so if every worker is paid, how much it should pay, be paid, he or she should be paid, 
then we don't have affordable food on our supermax stands. So that's really complex because it's it's a neoliberal phenomenon in the end. I mean, it started as a pre-industrial phenomenon and now it absorbed inside of it all the neoliberal aspects. So our food systems are not sustainable. But the first thing is the certification and we have to try, even if we know it's not going to be everywhere, it's not going to be on every food but we have to try and we have to to tell our governments, European and national governments, that we want to be sure that there is no exploitation behind it. So that's the first thing for me. The second thing is to apply the law that we have in Italy currently against Caparalato, against the gang master system, because we have it. It was approved first in 2011 and then in 2016, but it's not always applied. And here I say the third point for me, which is understanding that every legal framework has limits. And when we're talking about mafia, it has huge limits. Why? Because the sociological and cultural aspect of, of mafia forbids it to be resolved merely by legal, legal steps. Laws are not enough to fight the system because it's too rooted in our culture, in our way of making food, and it is too profitable for the neoliberal market in which it is placed. So the third point would be that of reducing the forces that push people into criminal systems. And that is sustainable growth of our countries. That is including people of our economic systems, of our, in, our, in our social system, in our cultural systems. That's the third step. And that's, I think, the most important one. And of course, it is in the long term. And what is the responsibility of large-scale retailers? Big retailers, they have a huge impact. Supermarkets and especially, you know, the big food supply chain, it has, it has the power of setting very low prices in supermarkets. And these prices are so low that they, I mean, everyone that, that is working for the food to, to go on the f- supermarket stands is earning less and less, right? So we have the small farm picking tomatoes with, you know, a couple of workers. And then they're selling the, the tomatoes to a bigger farm that is making it into a sauce. And then they're selling it again, you know, to make the, the label, to, to make the packaging. And then it is transported to a supermarket, maybe even to a small supermarket. And then to the small supermarket, it's, it's sold to a bigger supermarket. So we understand there are so many steps in this that three euros is actually nothing. So there is m- someone that is exploited. And this is always the workers. <laughs> you can trust me. It's always the workers paying for what? For the gap between how much food should be sold for in order to be, you know, fair, to be good, and how much people can actually afford to pay food. Because, of course, if workers would be paid, I'm just saying minimal wage, minimum wage, I'm not saying more, then food would be a bit more expensive and many people could, uh, couldn't afford uh, to buy food, which is, of course, something that we can't uh, let be. Um, so this gap, it is covered by unpaid labor or exploited labor. And this gap can't clearly be occupied by them, and it should be occupied with subsidies to farms and lots of other instruments that can fill this gap without exploiting people. But as I was saying, supply chain, the food supply chain has a huge role in this, and they are the ones that um, should be fought first. That's essential. And Diletta, can we have an active role as consumers? To understand how we can impact the 
supply system and the exploitation of the supply chain, we have to understand the difference between consumer activists and ethical consumers. Ethical consumers believe that consumers are at fault for bad ethics of big farms or big industries, while consumer activists believe that companies have responsibility to society. So that's really different. And also it is different the way in which consumer activists think that they should and they must actually um, make the, uh, the market accountable and make it ethical and make it sustainable. But the market should change. While ethical consumers think that consumers should shop their way to equality. You know, the second concept, the concept of ethical consumers is, is quite elitist in the end because most people cannot afford to make ethical choices. They don't have time, they don't have space, they don't have really like actual possibilities to make such choices because maybe they live in the suburbs and they, you know, have 20 minutes to shop or something like this. So um, we, I think this difference, it is essential to, you know, turn ourselves from ethical consumers to consumer activists. So try to do our best and at the same time understanding who really is at fault and who we should uh, make accountable for exploitation. It's really sad that our food system is so rotten. But thank you, Diletta, for giving us some indications of concrete steps we can take in order to improve this situation from the certification to apply legislation to becoming aware and active consumers. And um, as you were mentioning, this gangsmaster phenomenon doesn't only happen in Italy, but in other countries too. What about your own country, you that you are listening to the podcast? This could be a great discussion for the fair weeks of the On My Plate Challenge. But now let's move to Paris to meet our second host, Bastien Beaufort. Bastien, how did you decide to start the fair trade business of Guayapi? So actually, I did not start Guayapi. My mother did, Claudie Ravel, who is also a slow food France Paris activist. She started Guayapi 30 years ago, in 1990, after three years of feasibility studies that she initiated while she was pregnant of me. So I have to say I'm linked to this enterprise since the beginning. So she started Guayapi because she wanted to link the well-being and the health that plants can provide us with the opening of the cultures of the world and indigenous people. Uh, my mother, Claudie, had many friends, first from Brazil and others from Sri Lanka, countries and regions where she had traveled. And these friends, one of them, Dr. Bernard Twati, is a respected nutritionist, psychiatrist and, and medical doctor in, in France, married to a Brazilian, and they identified about a dozen of Amazonian plants that were, that were not available in Europe at that time, among, among them the Warana. So she started like this, and it was a huge job of declaring these plants to the European markets because the rules and regulation for importing and distributing food plants that are very traditional in Brazil or Sri Lanka, whether it be from the indigenous people traditions or whether it be from the Ayurvedic traditions in Sri Lanka, 
is very complicated because these are plants that provide well-being, energy, antioxidants, vitamins, minerals that have been consumed for centuries, millenaries sometimes by these people and that we sometimes don't know. So it's like in the 15th century when Europeans discovered tomato first and if you look at the many great plants that came from the Amazonian rainforest or South America to Europe, if you look at potatoes, tomatoes, if you look at tobacco, if you look at uh, rubber, if you look at uh, spices, the capsicum, peppers, right? Uh, if you look at the coca leaf, even, all these plants from Amazonia and South America have given a great richness to the world gastronomy and especially our European civilization. So we, we should be accountable for this heritage. And this is not fair that today we have the main economic richness, whereas many countries in the tropical world have the more biodiversity. So I joined for this reason. I joined for this reason because we need to make a fair international system. We need to make a fair international system where we can be open to the whole traditions, the culinary, gastronomic and ecological traditions of the world so that we understand that the very basis of our daily gastronomics relies on exchanges and on sometimes very exotic and, and faraway cultures. So we shall not confound localism, which is a way to reconnect to our territories, with seasonality, which of course should be the rule for our food. We should really speak about fair trade and internationalism, because we can that way develop fair way of transportation for this food, spices and fine groceries and establish very interesting links with the Terra Madre communities of this world. Yeah, you're right to mention that the wealth of Western countries a lot of times relies on the exploitment of countries that have the richest natural resources and are now in the worst economical situation. But we could open a whole discussion about, uh, about that and also about localism, seasonality and imported food. Maybe we could dedicate a whole episode about it. Anyway, getting back to Guayapi. Why did you choose to work with the Slow Food Presidium and why the one of the Guarana in Brazil? When we started to import Guarana in, in Europe, it was not a presidium and actually it was not the Guarana from the Satere Maue. But in 1993, an anthropologist, Doctora Alba Figueroa, who had made her PhD with the Satere Maue people, introduced Claudie, my mother, to the Satere Maue indigenous people because these people are the ones who domesticated and invented the culture of Guarana. So at that time, she already started to import Guarana from the Satere Maue, which is called Guarana in their language, which means the principle of knowledge in Europe, within our network of uh, organic food chain stores, because we distribute this Guarana in 3,000 food chain stores today. But it was not a presidium still. But Warana started to be a presidium in 2001, one of the first international presidium within Slow Food. So the interest is that today, Guarana represents a huge market 
under the form of energy drinks and food supplements of about 6 to 7 billion US dollars. So it's huge. And from this amount, almost 80% is produced with hybrid seeds, industrial system, low prices, and almost all of this business is dislinked from the Satere Maui. What I mean by this is that the Satere Maui are not neither consulted, neither associated with the benefits of the biodiversity which is gained by corporation using Guarana. Because today, Guarana is mainly produced in Brazil and South America by many other populations that are not Satere Maui. So the idea of the Presidium is to start back to the indigenous people who originally discovered and cultivated this vine, this liana, the Warana, in their ancestral territories, their indigenous, their indigenous land, the Andira Marao indigenous land, is the terroir, the original terroir of the Warana. And of course to start to share these benefits with the consentment of the Satelema indigenous people to pay a very high price, 10 times the price of the market, approximately, and to offer the denomination of origin, the geographical indication of the Guarana, which is the Guarana, which does very make sense because after 20 years of presidium, this has been recognized the denomination of origin by the Brazilian state. And it's a huge recognition. So this is all the reason why we uh, decided to, to work with this indigenous Amazonian Brazilian slow food presidium. And more especially, I shall say, is that Warana is a physical and intellectual dynamizer, non-exciting, that enhance concentration, well-being, vision, uh, work, physical activity. And so it's an amazing plant, a very good alternative to, to coffee and tea and all the tonics plants. And Bastian, you were mentioning that the price of the Warana should be 10 times more compared to the rest of the market. But do you think people are ready to pay a fair price for food? So this is a very complex question. And it has different answers, different levels of answers. On the one hand, I do think that people are more than ever ready to pay a fair price for food. And the COVID-19 situation with the worldwide lockdown ha had proved this to be true. Because, for example, in France, and I'm sure in, in other European countries and all, all the countries in the world, actually, the lockdown had made people go back to the basics. And this was basically to cook food at home. Everyone started to, not everyone, but a large part of the population that have the educational knowledge and the economics to accede to this kind of good, clean and fair food, started to buy and to pay, to pay better price for their food. And this is also due because as the restaurants and the bars and the theaters were closed, the, the people has more money on their bank account. And so they spend more money on food. And I shall also speak about the, the, all the clothes and high technology uh, chain stores that were also closed because at what time only the food chain stores were open. So people have more money to spend on food. So, and, and this is a tendency. What the studies shows is that... Um, 
Even after the COVID and the lockdown, people continue and they have changed their habits. So yes, on the one hand, people are ready to pay a fair price for food. On the other hand, we can see that some part of the people don't have access to the information, the education and the economics to uh, allow fair food. And this is a pity because if you look at the, the, the spendings of the... Um, of the people, food represents the same spendings every year than the high technology like television, cell phones, etc. This is crazy. So we have to make a great education, as I was saying. And if we start as conscient citizens to make the choice to allow a big part of our budgets and our spendings on good food, on on the farmers, on the producers, not giving it to intermediaries, not giving it to large corporations. If we make this choice, we will really rebuild our ecosystems and our societies. And this is by giving this fair remuneration, this fair money to the producer, that we will enrich ourselves as a society. This is the very simple way we have to go. Thank you, Bastian, for your intervention and for sharing with us your experience within the fair trade business. So now that you have also mentioned it, let's look at fair food in another perspective. How can we guarantee fair access to food? Let's have a talk with Professor Nevin Cohen, who is waiting for us in New York. Nevin, which problem is society facing regarding access to healthy and sustainable food in New York? The major problem in access to healthy and sustainable food is poverty and the policies that enable poverty to persist. That, in my opinion, is the most important problem facing our food system. And I'll give you some examples. Before the pandemic, about 13% of the population in New York City was food insecure. But with certain areas like the Bronx, populated by um, mostly Black and Latino people making very low, low incomes, there was a 17.5% rate of food insecurity. And another way to measure this is, is uh, counting the meals missed from food insecure homes. And again, in 2018, prior to the pandemic, an estimated 185 million meals were missing from households because they, they couldn't afford to uh, put food on the table. So that's a serious problem in New York. Uh, 20% of New Yorkers have depended on SNAP dollars, and SNAP is the Sup Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. It's federal funds that help low-income households pay for food uh, to put adequate food on their table to feed their families. And This, this level of poverty contributes to malnourishment and health disparities like elevated rates of cardiovascular diseases among uh, New York City's poorest residents who, because of structural racism, are overwhelmingly Black and Latino. And so you know, these, these are the problems that, that we're facing, and they, they, they all come down to issues of poverty, which are related to unemployment rates, low wages, 
and high cost of living. So if I'm not mistaken, the areas that you're mentioning, such as the Bronx, were also the most affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. Were there any recent changes in policies due to the pandemic's effects and also due to the recent uprisings of social justice movements? Those are great questions. Uh, the pandemic in the U.S. has clearly worsened ec economic inequality. And cities like New York were really hard hit by the COVID virus. And so uh, New, York, New York City economic inequality has, has grown. Uh, the City University of New York, where I teach, has been conducting surveys of New York residents during the pandemic to find out what their um, lives have been like and what effects the pandemic have, have had on, on, on their lives and their health in particular. And we found that by November 2020, for example, almost a third, 29% of respondents reported running out of food at some time during the, the course of the pandemic since March, with disparities among Black respondents um, who reported at a 34% rate and Latino respondents who reported at a 38% rate that they ran out of food sometime. Compared to white respondents in the survey, um, uh, only 19% of white respondents reported running out of food. Um, I mentioned before that, that SNAP, the federal food subsidy program, was being used by 1.5 million New Yorkers before the pandemic. We found that 200,000 more people qualified for and had to use SNAP during the pandemic. So these disparities are, are really significant. Uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and uh, other, other political movements as a result of the uh, national election that we had in the U.S., have really called attention to racism in our society and the racial disparities in access to food and also the conditions that food laborers face. And in New York, this has led the city government to focus on equity uh, in a food policy platform that the city council released last year that was really focused on food equity and in a soon to be released citywide food plan that the mayor's office is, is preparing. And these, these plans include calls for things like increased wages, protections for food workers, greater access to healthy food, and structural changes, like efforts to promote worker ownership of food businesses so that it's less likely that food businesses will fire people or reduce wages uh, in an economic downturn, but will find ways to keep, keep the business running and support the employees who in a, in a worker-owned business are also the owners of the company. And do you know any grassroots initiatives that aim to improve the access to quality food in low-income communities? Yeah, yeah. So, for example, uh, there's a, a community farm in the, in the South Bronx called Friends of Brook Park, and they do two things that are really amazing. Besides giving space for people to grow vegetables, they, they run an alternative to incarceration program for young people who get involved with the legal system. You know, they're arrested for something and they're allowed to participate in an urban farming project as an alternative to going to jail. And, and as you may know, in the U.S., incarceration rates are really high and our prisons are filled mostly with, with Black and Latino people. It's a terrible social problem. 
and any opportunity for alternatives to sending sending young people to jail is is really important uh, for uh, the, the social benefit of the communities that the, these young people are in and, and their own future. And so this alternative to incarceration program grows hot peppers, and these hot peppers happen to be produced into hot sauce that is sold online and through farmers markets throughout New York City. It's called Bronx Hot Sauce. And uh, it's, it's a great example of how uh, the space is used for an activity that is aimed at addressing a serious social problem. And the, the fact that the chilies are made into delicious hot sauces is, is, is a great uh, side benefit, but the real benefit is in uh, helping young people avoid going to jail. And a second thing that the garden does, and I'm sorry, I'm going on way long, but they, 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 they organize meetings with local nonprofit advocacy organizations that are dealing with related issues to the food system and food insecurity. For example, they, they've had meetings of anti-homeless housing advocacy organizations because the, the farmers realize that the reason people have to grow fresh vegetables is because they either can't afford to buy vegetables in the supermarket and there aren't that many supermarkets located in their neighborhood because purchasing power is, is weak because people don't earn a living and housing costs are high and these are all connected to the, the importance of alleviate, alleviating poverty. And one way to alleviate poverty in a city like New York is to reduce housing costs. So the urban farmers realize that these issues are all connected and that using their space, their garden space, as a place to meet, to talk about housing issues and why people, why so many people are homeless in New York is an important way to enable the gardeners to engage in politics and change the root causes of the reasons that they have to grow food. Yeah, I guess we can read more examples in your book, Beyond the Kale. Yes, there are many examples. We, 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 we wrote the book in a way that profiles the work of uh, mostly Black and Latino urban farmers in New York City, many of them women, who are really using their gardens or farms to address various forms of oppression, gender oppression, racial oppression, economic oppression. And growing the food is certainly important, but it's not the only uh, motive of, of these projects. And Nevin, based on your own experience, which actions can we take as individuals and as a community to promote fair access to food? So my, my strong opinion is that we can't cook our way out of the problem of fair access to food. And... While individual actions like growing food in a community garden, eating local food, paying, paying fairly for food that's grown and prepared by others are all important. And the members of Slow Food uh, are, are people who practice those, those, those things. But Slow Foodies need to be involved in politics, as we all do. So I, I want to emphasize the importance of collective action. Uh, we need to participate in campaigning for candidates who will support workers, protect the environment from climate change and end poverty. And if, if there's one thing in the US that we learned from the last national election, every vote matters and collective actions like the get out the vote drives in Georgia, for example, can actually win elections. And so 
I, I would say that, that we, don't, we don't need a, a fair plate, but we need a, a full menu for change. And that means everybody has to be involved in, in, in politics. In, in the book I, I wrote, Beyond the Kale, uh, the, the lesson of the book is that, exactly as the title says, it, it's not, it's not the, the food that's grown in community gardens and urban farms. It's, it's the use of those spaces and those activities to organize um, against forms of oppression. I love this final call to action. One of the Slow Food Youth Network models is food is politics. So we couldn't agree more with you. And guys, if you are interested in the book that Nevin Cohen wrote, Beyond the Kale, you can find the details in the podcast description. Before concluding the episode, let's do a final round with the central question of today. What is fair food for you? Well, fair food to me means that is sustainable both for the land and both for the people who work it. I think that sadly, sustainability and most movements for sustainability failed in addressing the human um, aspect of work, of labor, in you know stressing the needs uh, of, of a sustainable change, of a sustainable revolution. Which is, which is, of course, essential and it is crucial and I am up for it 100%. But I think it's very, you know, um, it fails to be progressive. It fails to be anti-capitalistic in addressing the real, you know, the real labor force behind our systems. And food systems really, they rely on cheap and disposable labor force as most of our economic systems. We have a huge waste in food and yet people are starving And the same people that are harvesting and collecting our food and taking care of livestock, they are the people that the most are malnourished. And that's just absurd and that's that's cruel and it's violent and it's oppressive and it's exploitative and we must change it. We have no option really, we must change it. According to me, fair food means primarily, necessarily, that the producer is well paid for the food he produces. If a producer is not well paid, the food cannot be fair. This is simply as this. This means that we need to take into account the production costs in the price we pay for our food. Because today, prices are mainly fixed by the demand, the end of the value chain. And this demand is itself led by many factors, education primarily, economic policies, and advertisements by large corporations. And this education, advertisement, policies have made everything so that we think that the aim of life is to have cheap goods, cheap food, and in the end, cheap lives. It's crazy how we have been grown and every day, every minute, we have the message constantly saying to us, pay cheap and your life will be better because you will have more money. But money for what? For buying other cheap things. So I think we have a great education to do and start back to the production costs so that a producer cannot sell his food under these production costs, and then we shall add a fair price, which implies fair commerce and economics, 
And we should also add the collective development projects in this price we pay, so that there is not only the price of the food, but also the price of guaranteeing the maintenance of our ecosystems alive, our forests, our soils, and the collective developments of the producers. So fair food means that the people growing, preparing, and delivering it are paid fairly and treated fairly. So in the U.S., for example, it means, in my opinion, at least a $15 minimum wage for food workers. And in New York City, it means policies that the city has passed in the, in the last couple of years, such as paid sick leave, uh, the right to a work schedule that doesn't change at the last minute so people uh, are able to arrange for childcare and other, other things. And, and most recently, uh, the city has been encouraging worker ownership as a business model, uh, which in my opinion is a really much more fair way of organizing a business so that the workers in the business have a say over how the business operates. And fair to me also means fair to animals and fair to future generations through the use of techniques like regenerative agriculture that addresses, uh, tries to address climate change and uh, through organic production methods that uh, don't damage the planet and also don't expose farm workers to hazardous chemicals. Do you like this episode? Give us a five-star rating on iTunes. This will help us a lot to increase our visibility since we are still at the beginning. If you have any feedback, you can write to us via the Slow Food Youth Network social media and we will be happy to take your suggestions into consideration. This series of the podcast is organized on the occasion of Terra Madre 2020, the biggest event that the Slow Food Movement organizes every two years. This edition, due to the global pandemic, will have a big digital part and you can find the whole program at the link on the podcast description. Thank you for listening. I'm Valentina Gritti and this is the Slow Food Youth Network podcast. Ciao!